Lovely to see you this morning. Let's gather back together again. I'll start by telling you a story um, this morning. I want to imagine uh, a young guy in his 20s, in his first job. He's got a young family, and he went on a business trip to uh, the United States. And while he was out there, put all of his hotel costs on personal credit card, uh, running to several hundreds of pounds. Uh, came back, uh, put in an expenses claim to his company, and got the money reimbursed. Uh, But this young guy was a fairly diligent chap, um, and he was in the habit of just checking his credit card statements month by month. And months went by, and this amount from this uh, hotel in America never got charged to the credit card. And so got in touch with the hotel, and they had no record of the bill at all. So if you were that young guy, what would you do? You've got money in your bank account that's been reimbursed by your company, but the money has not been taken by the hotel. What would you do? Several hundreds of pounds. Got a young family, that's a lot of nappies. What would you do? Well, here's what I did because I was that young guy. I went to the accounts department of the company that I worked for, and I told them what had happened, and I handed them a cheque. And the person that I spoke to was just shocked. Why would I hand back hundreds of pounds? Nobody knew. Nobody would ever have found out. Have you ever had to draw a line that cost you? That cost you financially? That cost you uh, relationally? Romantically? professionally, have you ever had to draw a line? If you haven't, you will. There will come a point, a time when you'll have to decide whether to just go with the flow of the world around you or whether you're going to draw a line. A couple of weeks ago, we started a new series uh, which we'd entitled Shaping Culture. We're looking at the life of Daniel and his friends in the Old Testament. Uh, The story is set about 600 years B.C., Uh, Daniel and his friends have been living in Judah, that's what we might call modern-day Israel. Um, That country had been invaded by the Babylonians, and a whole bunch of the people had been taken into exile. They'd been shipped off to Babylon, and Babylon was a pagan, idol-worshipping, anti-faith, anti-God culture, an anti-God world. It has amazing parallels to the world and the culture in which we live now. And a couple of weeks ago, when we introduced this series, I spoke about uh, the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. And some of you were around. If you weren't, they're very simple, really. A thermometer measures temperature. It simply responds to the environment that it finds itself in. It has no influence. Thermostat sets temperature. It has an impact and an influence on the world that it finds itself in. And so the question that I asked us is, do you tend to live like a thermometer or a thermostat? Do you tend to just go with the flow and be shaped and conformed by the world around you? Or do you seek to shape and transform the world around you? See, one of the things that we find in the life of Daniel and his friends is the way that they didn't conform, but actually transformed the world around them. 
And one of the things that I believe that we need to learn from them is how to draw lines. That's what we're going to look at today. You see, culture and the world that we live in will put pressure on us to go in certain directions. And what I want us to think about is how do people of faith learn to draw lines? Where will you draw the line? I'd love to pray for us, and then we'll dive into the Bible this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your presence with us. Lord, thank you for one another. And Lord, I want to ask that as we think about some things this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be speaking into our lives. That you'd be releasing wisdom to us and courage to us. And so, Lord, we welcome your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell me if you have a Bible to Daniel chapter 3. If you've got a paper one, it's about that far in. That's why the index is helpful. If you've got a gadget, um, look it up. The, the words will come up on the screen in a moment. This is the story of the blazing furnace. Uh, many of you will have heard the story before. Um, familiar story, but some of you may not. Uh, for some, you may uh, not be grown up in church. You may not have been around church before. Uh, you may not have come to a point of saying yes to, to faith, yes to God. Um, if that's you, you are incredibly welcome here this morning. Um, and I hope that uh, what I share this morning is helpful um, to where you find yourself in life right now. So, verse 1, reading from verse 1 of Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So... The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I'm going to pause there. Nebuchadnezzar is just part of a long line of people and things who believe that they are God. Just one of a long line of people. In chapter 2, um, the story that we looked at last week, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And Daniel was the only one that sort of uh, could find out what that dream was and could interpret the dream for the king. And the dream was of a statue. It has a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, a torso of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of clay. And it represents four worldly kingdoms. 
And scholars, theologians will tell us this. It starts with the Babylonian Empire and works down through a number of major world empires until you end up, uh, most people would agree, with the Roman Empire at the bottom. If you were to lay this statue on its side, it, it gives you a pretty good timeline of history. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does, having heard this dream, what he does is he sets up a statue that is all gold. Not just the head, but all of it. So it's like him saying, well, whatever God has said in that dream, I'm going my own way. Not just the head, I'm setting up the whole of this statue in gold. In other words, it's all about me, and it's all about my dynasty and my kingdom. And then what he does is he demands people to bow down. Demands them to bow down. I don't know whether you've found this. There are lots of things in our world that want us to bow down to them. There can be pressure from all sorts of things to bow down. It might be a career that says, bow down. Money. Sex. Particular people. Says, bow down. Bow down. The Bible uses the language of idols. Anything that we bow down to, that we bend towards, that is not God himself. So what happens? What happens? Well, lots of people are bowing down. But we jump in the story because verse 12, some people bring a report back to the king. And they say to him, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are the three friends of Daniel, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your God nor worship the image of gold you have set up. So very simply, these three Jewish lads, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow down. They refuse to bow down. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Does he just brush it off? You know, there are thousands of people bowing down to this statue. So you could imagine it doesn't really matter if three people don't, does it? There are thousands bowing down. So you just brush it off, yeah? Well, the problem is Nebuchadnezzar is what we would probably call a narcissist. If you read the story, he has an extreme and insatiable sense of self-importance. He is very thin-skinned. He cannot take criticism. He never apologizes and never backs down. That might be familiar with someone you hear in the news quite a lot. That's what he does. He can't let it go. And so reading on, verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This is a big prayer. This is literally turn or burn. 
eternal birth. Here's what these three friends of Daniel reply from verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If the God we serve is able to deliver us from the blazing furnace and from your majesty's hand, God, I just said that, haven't I? If the God we serve is able to deliver us, then he will deliver us from the blazing service at furnace and from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold you have set up. Amazing reply. What enables them to do that? What enables someone to do what they do? See, what would enable someone at work to say, I'm not going along with this anymore. I'm not massaging the numbers anymore. I'm not being dishonest anymore. I'm going to blow the whistle. I'm going to draw a line. What would enable someone to do that? Or what would enable someone who's been brought up in a dysfunctional family where maybe there's been generations of addiction, what would enable someone to stand up and say, I'm not going along with the program anymore. I'm going to draw a line. What enables that? What enables people like you and I not to bend? Not to conform to the world around us, but to draw a line. What does that? What enabled Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to refuse to bow down was What enables any follower of Jesus to do what they did is faith. So I want to share three things this morning about faith. First thing, faith is a commitment to the truth. It's a commitment to the truth. Many people misunderstand faith. We might pray for someone or pray for something and we just don't feel like we've got a lot of faith. And we may struggle, and often I speak to people, and they struggle through not feeling they have much faith for something. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a geeing ourselves up to believe something. You know, if we can just talk about it enough to ourselves, you know, I must believe, I must believe, I must believe. It's not a geeing ourselves up so that we feel something. Faith is a commitment, a choice towards the truth. It says something like this, I'm trusting and I'm choosing to trust in the God that the Bible and Jesus reveals to the world. I'm choosing to believe that God loves me and that he sent his son Jesus to die for me so that I could receive eternal life. And I'm choosing to trust that when God makes a promise, he does not lie. I'm leaning to the truth. See, faith is a commitment to the truth. And faith means that we bend towards God and not inwards to ourselves or towards the world around us. We bend towards God. Second thing, 
Faith is a commitment to a set of non-negotiables. A set of non-negotiables. Do you have things in your life that are non-negotiables? Lines that you won't cross. Do you have non-negotiables? Any place that you would refuse to go, even if it costs you. Are there things in your life where you would say, I have refused to compromise because of my commitment to Jesus? Are there some non-negotiables in your life? I think this is really important because many people living in our world live in such a way where everything is up for grabs. Everything is for sale. Uh, Any lines are sort of dotted, written in pencil so they can get rubbed out very easily. Everything is up for grabs. But what we see in Daniel's three friends is they had a set of non-negotiables. There was a point where they would go and a point where they would not go. Now, they didn't make an issue of everything. We saw that when we had a look at chapter 1. In chapter 1, these good Jewish boys were given pagan Babylonian names. And they didn't take issue with that. But they took issue with bowing down to this statue of Nebuchadnezzar. For people like us, we can't take issue with everything unless you want to die young. Can't take issue with everything. So, for example, you might find yourself in a supermarket and someone is using language and swearing away. You, you, you just you don't like it very much. And if you have a small child with you and they're really going, you might just say to them, you know, could you just tone it down a bit? But if you took issue with everyone who swears around you, you'll die. You'll die. You see, there are some hills that we choose not to die on. But there are places where we do need to draw lines. Let me just share an example with us this morning. I would like to use the example of dating and marriage. Dating and marriage. If you're single here this morning, and I know some of you are, and I know some here have made a choice to stay single. You've responded to the call of God to live your life that way. If that's you... God bless you. There are a number of here that are married that, that just sort of couldn't do that. You're weaker. God bless you. But others here, I know, you're single, uh, but you have an aspiration to, to date and get married. My question to you is, do you have a list of non-negotiables regarding dating and marriage? Now, I know that for some single people, they don't just have a list, they have a whole book. Thousands of things that a potential partner needs to be like. If you have a book, let me encourage you to be more flexible. Take some of those things out. You may be here when you're married, and I hope uh, that if that's you, you will know some single people, um, and that you want them to do really well in life, and helping one another to draw lines. And you may be here this morning, and you're a parent, And one of the things that you want for your children is that they would do incredibly well in this area of relationship, of dating and marriage. So, the reason I share this is because, in general, our culture says, do what you want in this area. If it doesn't doesn't hurt, do what you want and marry who you want. And so my question is, is if you're someone of faith, 
are you going to be like a thermometer and just go with the world and the culture around you, or are you going to be more like a thermostat and set a temperature? So as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, where are you going to draw the line? Where are your non-negotiables? So in this area of dating and marriage, here's three things that would be on my list. If I was still single, or that I would uh, counsel people that are in that situation and, and thinking about dating and marriage. Three things that would be on my list. The first thing is that the person that I date or marry must be a practicing Christian. That would be on my list. That would be one of my lines. Why? Because I believe that's what the Bible says. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, talking to people of faith, he says, do not be yoked together to an unbeliever. Now, why would he say that? You'll know that if you're married, there are all sorts of conflicts that arise in a close relationship. But the last thing that you want to be fighting about is faith. It can be also, you can argue about how tidy the kitchen is, what washing powder you use, but the last thing I believe that you want to be fighting about is faith. You don't want to be fighting about whether or not you're going to be part of a church, whether or not you're going to pray, whether or not you're going to give uh, a portion of your income to the church that you're a part of. Faith should bring you together, not separate you. That's why it's on my list. Second thing that would be on my list is the person that I date or marry must have integrity. I want to be connected to someone that I know I can trust 100%. That they will tell the truth to me. So that would be on my list. I want to date or marry someone of integrity. And the third thing, the person I date or marry must draw lines with me regarding sex before we get married. So we're going to draw some lines. Now, I share this, and I know this is a sensitive thing, but a perennial question that I, that I hear Christian single people ask all the time, it goes something like this, how far is too far? In other words, how far can I go towards the edge before I topple over the edge? How far is too far? In other words, what we're sort of saying to Jesus is, Jesus, what would you allow me to get away with? What would you allow me to get away with? I really don't think that's the right question. That's not a great question. I think it is but much better to be asking some different questions. Questions like, Jesus, what would it look like to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength in this relationship? What would it look like to be a fully sold-out worshipper of you in this relationship? What would it look like to love this other person for who they are and not just so that my needs are met. What would that look like? So where are you going to draw the line? Relationally, where, where are your lines? In business, where, where are your lines? In sex, with how you use your money, where, where are your lines? Where are you going to draw the line? So faith is a commitment to the truth. It's a commitment to a set of non-negotiables. The third thing I want to share 
about faith is that it is a commitment to do God's will regardless. To do God's will regardless. Let me read verses 16 to 18 again. I love these verses. For me, these are probably the best description of faith that you will find in the whole of Scripture. I love these verses. Verses 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If the God we serve is able to deliver us, then he will deliver us from the blazing furnace and from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your God or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if he does not. I figure that Daniel's friends weighed the cost. They calculated the risk. They understood that if God did not miraculously intervene, they would most likely lose their life. They knew what was going to happen. You might have heard of a Christian author called Oswald Chambers. He wrote this, commenting on this text. He says, they smilingly washed their hands of the consequences. I love that. They smilingly washed their hands of the consequences. They knew what this could mean for them. You see, when we don't know where the lines are, we struggle, we wrestle. But once we know, once we know where our lines are, it's like it's game over, checkmate. It's done. Because when we have in that place, in faith, we can say, whatever happens, happens. Not in a fatalistic kind of way, but in a faith-filled way. It's like we say to God, God, this is over to you. Whatever happens, happens. God, it is over to you. Now, Sometimes, God does deliver us. That's what happened to Daniel's three friends. In fact, if you read on in the account, uh, you will see that they were thrown into a blazing furnace. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was so angry, he ramped up the temperature. And when those who were observing looked on, they actually saw four figures in the furnace. And they said that the fourth one was like a son of the gods. And most theologians will tell us, technical word, this was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. God saved them. Sometimes God does deliver us. But sometimes God does not. Sometimes we do everything right and we still get burned. This next picture is from Broad Street in Oxford. The stone cross set in a disc of cobblestones that you'll find in the middle of the road. And it marks the place where Bishop Ridley, Bishop Latimer, and Archbishop Cranmer were burnt alive for their faith in the 16th century. And we still see this today. Christian people who suffer and even lose their lives for their faith. Now, for most of us in the United Kingdom, we don't face that kind of but that does not mean there isn't a price to pay for remaining faithful to God. Sometimes 
when we draw a line, we get both. 